Welcome back to Born Curious, a new podcast from Harvard Radcliffe Institute. I'm your co-host, Ivalice Estrada. And I'm Heather Min. In today's episode, Ivalice sits down for a one-on-one with David Gruber, a visiting researcher at the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Harvard. David's a distinguished professor of biology at Baruch College of the City University of New York. He's the founder of Project SETI, the Cetacean Translation Initiative, which originated during his time at Harvard Radcliffe Institute in the 2017 to 2018 fellowship class. He's going to talk about his research and what the future might hold. Hello, David. Good to see you again. Yeah. To start, I want to ask you about when you first arrived at Radcliffe. Sure. Why were you known as the jellyfish guy? So previously coming to Radcliffe, I was really working on corals. And corals have a soft body relative, the the jellyfish. And I was just curious about, you know, their longevity. They're so old. They've survived mass extinctions. But I was also working with a roboticist here at Harvard, Rob Wood, who was using soft robotics that was inspired by jellyfish. So I just love the idea of really doing a deep dive into jellyfish, their history, who they are, how they survive extinction events, what we could learn from them. There's one jellyfish known as the immortal jellyfish, which is the longest living animal that we know of that um, could live for eternity, um, just goes back and back. It goes, it does aging in reverse. So it's unclear um, how many times it can do this. So I was known as the jellyfish guy. That was, that's why I came here. So here at the Institute, we often talk about Radcliffe moments, um, mm. which is when something amazing forms from collaboration. Sure. And that creation sparks something magical that persists beyond the fellowship year. Yeah. What would you describe as your Radcliffe moment? My Radcliffe moment... Um, we're on the third floor at Byerly, and there was just a, you know, a really tight cohort up there. Of um, We were going to lunch every day. We were um, you know, convening a lot to have conversations. And one of the people across the hall was Shafi Goldwasser. And she you know, came into my office several times. And during my Radcliffe year, I had all this underwater camera equipment kind of piled up in my office that I that I brought from my university. And um, she was asking questions, what is this? And I began you know, sharing some of my work and played her some whale sounds. I had read a book while I was here at Radcliffe um, about free divers that were trying to use their free diving capacity to understand sperm whales. And so I played her some of these sperm whale clicks And she just thought it was really interesting. And um, we talked further. And then a few weeks later, she invited me to a, one of these Radcliffe lunches where um, it was a Radcliffe lunch or it was a working group where Shafi had assembled um, some of the best machine learning people in the world and then brought a lot of the Radcliffe fellows there that were interested in how does artificial intelligence and machine learning, um, what's happening under the hood and how could we explore it? So like Martha Minow was, was in the room and she was interested in could AI, you know, read all the law books at the Harvard Law School and allow for 
um, a low-cost um, legal advice for, for, for people who can't afford it. And, um, and I was there, and Shafi had asked me to, to play some of these sounds. And I just remember the room um, you know, playing these sounds there where it, when you play sperm whale sounds, they're very different than the normal humpback whale songs that we're accustomed to. These are more like digital transmission, um, almost like a jackhammer or Morse code. And I just remember the, the fascination of everyone in the room of like asking a lot of questions. Wow, how many of these sounds do you have? What's the context? And in the room was Michael Bronstein, another fellow. And he began even further asking me questions. And we wrote a paper on this when we did get some of the, the best database of sperm whale sounds. And it showed that machine learning indeed could play a very powerful role in understanding whale bioacoustics. So you, you started this project. It's called Project SETI. What does it stand for? And where is it now? Well, first, to, just to give some context of, you know, starting from this Radcliffe lunch seminar that Shafi organized, um, this just seeded an idea, um, just an idea that we could apply machine learning to whale bioacoustics. Then we did a proof of concept study. Um, but at the same time, we, we threw a Radcliffe Explor exploratory seminar. Um, and this was really the key to making this project happen. And we put together maybe 15 people from different disciplines right here at Radcliffe to, to just two days just discussing this idea. And I remember there was a moment in this Radcliffe Exploratory Seminar where Daniela Roos, who's the, the director of MIT's CSAIL, kind of came together and said, wow, if, if we're able to translate whale communication, we'll also be able to translate any non-human communication, including aliens. And I just remember kind of chuckling, and I looked around the room, and everybody was serious. So from this point, our plan was just to apply for some grants and think of a, a cohort that would begin looking for funding. We applied to the TED Audacious, and that gave us catalytic funding for five years to begin this project. And we decided that the best way to do this project was to actually start a nonprofit um, called Project SETI, the Cetacean Translation Initiative. And um, so we began a nonprofit, and this nonprofit is now the largest non-human communication initiative in history. Wow. Um, I have seen the website. There are a lot of people working there. Yeah, we're, I think we're pushing around 50 scientists now that are part of, the, part of this organization. So any plans to apply this research to talk to any other species? Or is maybe talking to whales is a big enough job? You know, I guess one of the things is we don't want to necessarily talk to the whales. They don't need talking to. We want to we listen to and, and translate them. And we chose, we chose this whale for many different reasons. And one of the reasons is, is that unlike the, the, the humpback whales that sing, um, and sometimes it's only one sex that's singing, the, the sperm whales use these clicks to communicate and a variety of clicks in different fashions with tempos and beats. Mm -hmm. 
And this was, um, so this is different than, so this is more of like sound that you use specifically for communication. That's really interested us. We also, our lead biologist had been studying a family of uh, about 200 female whales in Dominica for the last 15 years. And it really carefully and painstakingly collected over 15,000 clicks and annotated them beautifully. So it was that data set that Michael Bronstein was able to lead us through applying some of the most advanced machine learning um, techniques to show its power on a carefully annotated data set. But that opened up the question of if this could do this on 15 years of data collecting in the tens of thousands, what could it do on millions and billions like ChatGPT3 and now ChatGPT4? And so partially, the goal now is to create a non-human database in, in the same size category that we have for humans, which is massive. And so once we do whales, we could essentially take a lot of the different tools that we're developing and apply this to others. So ones that are top on the list are elephants, of course. And we're already communicating with uh, some of the leading elephant researchers like Joyce Poole and Katie Payne about um, can this be used for elephant communication? And what would a similar organization that with the Cetacean Translation Initiative would look like for elephants or for birds? And um, so, yeah, we're really excited to just like basically set up the first tool sets and bring in more people. And it, there's a Radcliffe fellow this year, Karen Backer, who, who wrote a book, The Sounds of Life, which really beautifully summarizes this field of digital bioacoustic. And she refers to the combination of digital bioacoustics with machine learning to be the new telescope, the new microscope, and having that potential where it allowed us to see outward so far and see the universe or see inward inside of cells that what is coming right now with applying machine learning with bioacoustics is on that level. And um, it's really exciting to be, you know, at the kind of front of the wave of this new field. I for one would like to know what my cat is trying to tell me. Yeah, your cat. There are some commercial entities that are sparting out. Um, one of them is called Zoolingua that I think is uh, is using this more to help with dogs and cats. Um, so, of course, uh, you know, animals are communicating with us, that's for sure. And I think dogs and cats were, these are animals that most humans are so familiar with. So, yeah, there's clearly to be um, advances in those fields. But, um, but, yeah, we're looking even beyond that, you know, looking at birds, looking at primates, looking at elephants. Um, and what would it mean to us if we could, we could understand life in a different way? And that's one of the beauties, I think, of this project. Like, it's just an open question. Like, could understanding animals on a deeper level using this technology bring us closer to nature? And we're hoping yes, but we don't have an answer. You're, you're no stranger to interdisciplinary collaborations yeah. from your past, you know, from the research that you came with. Um, how is this one different? This project, I feel, is really pushing my limits of interdisciplinary collaboration. In the past, I'd worked on projects with like maybe one or two other disciplines. Like, for example, we, we built a shark eye camera. So we first had to study the biology of the shark's eye. Then we had to make a camera. 
Um, and then we went swimming with the shark um, to then run some models on how the shark sees the world. But this project is bringing together people from machine learning, people from cryptography, people from robotics, people from natural language processing. There's linguists on the team. There's signal processors. There's underwater bioacoustics. There's about eight different disciplines that are, that are working together on this project. What are the challenges to what you're trying to do? Other than we don't speak the language. You know, it's really interesting. I would, we, we joke sometimes that the, the easiest part of this project is the whales. And, and, um, and the human communication among the different disciplines is one, of the, is one of the more difficult parts of the project. But it's also enjoyable. And that's something that we picked up here at Radcliffe is the ability to really listen to and hear each other and the different modalities and communication processes, even across disciplines. And just being able to listen to and understand and communicate and really respect the domain expertise. And I think as the leader of this project, that's a skill that, that I practice every day because everybody is so good at their field. And it's about getting all of these groups to communicate efficiently and effectively so we could pursue the mission of the project, which is better listen to and then translate what whales are saying. I remember um, for a really long time, um, at the beginning of the fellowship, the fellowship staff would do this little skit about terms that meant different things in different, um, different disciplines. And they were just very basic words, but it, it was, I wish I could remember any of them, but it was just like, you can't use these words across the disciplines. They mean totally different things to totally different, you know, to different people. So I can imagine that that would be something just finding a common language would have been, um, you know, difficult. Yeah, yeah, there's so many of these. And, and now I become, well, especially having linguists on the team, you know, even the word language, it could be, could be a charged word and we have to be careful how we use that word. And even the word artificial intelligence is now among the, the community, they'd prefer to call it machine learning. So just even understanding all these nuances about how the different disciplines communicate with each other is, uh, you know, they could easily tell someone who's not up to speed in their, in their field by the way they use language. And what do you hope that, I think you covered this a little bit, but um, what do you hope the, the future brings for, for Project SETI? Project SETI, for me, the idea is really to just bring as much goodness to the world as, as possible. It's a, we call it a listening project because in essence, we're, we're really training our our best technology to listen to another species. And I think that kind of higher level um, theme of the project is, is really important. It's about listening. It's about um, you know trying to translate the voice of another species. And it's about working together. And um, so I think the, the real, like what the metric of success would be is that we just push forward our understanding and, and, and we show that by working together, we could achieve a lot more than what any single discipline could have done. And do you have any other 
I have to ask this because I know that you're, you know, you're an oceanographer and you're, you know, you're a nature guy, right? Mm. Um, are there any ulterior motives in terms of, you know, um, saving the species or anything like that kind of that are built into a project like this? I'm, I'm trained as a biological oceanographer and I started from microbes. So I went from bacteria, protozoa interactions and then into corals and then into sharks and turtles and now into whales, you know, Moby, Moby Dick, especially. And the motive really is, I think in our, in, in, as an oceanographer, especially studying coral reefs, it was so difficult to get people to connect with corals and jellyfish. Like it just, people would like to hear about it, but it was, they're so distant from us um, phylogenetically and, and even under the ocean that it was really hard to get people to like feel empathy for, for coral reefs. So I feel with this project, there's something about whales that, that really trigger this like imagination center in our brain. The fact that there's some of the biggest creatures, the blue whale is the biggest creature that's ever existed on our planet. And they're still swimming here. You know, and there's still several hundred thousand of them. And previously through Melville and Moby Dick, we've vilified these creatures and, and murdered them. But they could be one of the most intelligent creatures in the planet. I, I just like the idea of bringing awareness to so many different forms of intelligence and that it comes in many varieties. How did your work change as you continued your time at Radcliffe? I think with many Radcliffe projects, um, you know, the, f the fellowship happened and all these amazing people that were put under this roof at Byerly Hall. And um, so I began starting with Jellyfish with some of the uh, Radcliffe research assistants and I'm um, going down the road and continuing. And even we, with Rob Wood, we went to the New England Aquarium and we worked on Jellyfish and we tested an ultra gentle robot on the jellyfish and were able to then use advanced transcriptomics to show that using this ultra gentle robot that can interact with jellyfish with one tenth of the pressure that your eyelid rests on your eyeball, that it didn't stress the jellyfish. And this was a really fun study that happened in the back of the, the New England Aquarium while, while I was here at Radcliffe. What, what else did you find was, was very unique about Radcliffe or the Radcliffe Fellowship Program? It was the conversations. It was the weekly lunches. It was the, it was the openness every time we'd sit with a different group of people at lunch. Um, we got to really know each other as individuals. And, and I feel for everybody that was in the Radcliffe Fellowship, we were all coming from such busy, hectic lives. And I, you can see it in our eyes, you know, of just being inundated with, with work and responsibilities. And this just felt like a kind of collective deep breath where we could think creatively and get re-inspired by ideas. And I, I think that was one of the beauties about this, just to have the time and the space after working for, for so many years, so incredibly focused, to then find a likewise community of individuals that was so open to sharing and exploring ideas. So David, tell us how Radcliffe has impacted your career. The impact it had is it really gave me the, the confidence 
to to explore at Word. It gave the time, the time to kind of look at different subjects that had interested me, but not have the time. It gave the the space for conversations. It really felt like going back to like the days of doing my PhD, where where there was just a lot of time to like walk around the pond and think and have new ideas and. Um, and I think that by having this, uh, you know, having the Radcliffe Fellowship at that point in my career, it was such a precious moment that allowed different things to come together and come in. And, and by meeting Michael and Shafi here at Radcliffe, and now we continue to work together on a daily basis. And Michael is the head of machine learning for SETI and Shafi is the head of theory for SETI. Yeah, it really just built community and changed the whole trajectory of everything I was doing. I want to thank David so much for joining us today to share his experiences and work with Project SETI. The Born Curious podcast is brought to you by Harvard Radcliffe Institute. Thanks for joining us. You can find Born Curious wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about Harvard Radcliffe Institute, visit radcliffe.harvard.edu.